This podcast is a production of the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. We receive no government funding and rely solely on the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research and teaching opportunities focused on George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation by visiting our website at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with King's College Georgian Papers Fellow, Dr. James Fisher, to discuss his latest findings on the topic titled, George Washington and the Transatlantic Circulation and Reception of Agricultural Literature and Knowledge. As a friendly reminder, there's still time to register for our upcoming Luncheon Fellowship Program with Mark Boonshop who will talk about his research topic titled Education and the Fight Over Who Should Rule at Home in the Early Republic on Thursday, June 27th. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.brownfernie.org podcast. As always, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast series so that you do not miss an episode. And now we join Drs. Butterfield and Fisher in the studio. So let me start with a simple question. Did George Washington read about farming? He did. He most certainly did. Um, right from the beginning when he first begins his full-time management of Mount Vernon from about 1759. So one of the first things he does when he leaves the Virginia Regiment is order some books on farming, British farming books. Um, and then we have evidence of him reading and taking notes from them from 1760. And then right through the rest of his life, so the next, what, 40 years until 1799, he is acquiring books at different stages, again, British farming books, um, and again, at various points, taking notes from them or describing some of the books he's reading in correspondence. Um, and then there are a number of uh, inventories throughout his life at different points of his that, that catalog his library, mm. the way we can see what he owned at different stages. And the number of farming books he has gradually increases throughout his life. So you've mentioned British agricultural books. Let's, yes. let's, let's scale way back and, and look at this broader um, marketplace, the broader um, uh, world of intellectual exchange and agriculture. Um, and let's stay actually really broad. Let's go outside of Britain. Uh, is, there, is there a continental literature on agriculture um, that the British is, uh, are engaged with? Okay, so if we're going, if we're going really big picture, yeah. then um, the oldest agricultural treaties that we have from the, from the classical period, first mm. there's a Greek treatise, and then there's quite a few Roman Latin treaties, and sort of from 2nd century BC right through to sort of 1st century AD. And is that the state of the field for centuries and centuries? Is, is Pretty much, yes. Yeah. So they, they get circulated through the medieval period, and then what happens when the printing press is invented in the late 15th century is... It leads to the printing of these, what used to be manuscripts, mm. and they get circulated around Europe in a lot greater numbers, and it inspires a new generation of gentlemen to take an interest, an intellectual interest in agriculture. So it starts in the 16th century and 17th century. And then what happens is all the later British authors, who Washington will go on to read, are very much influenced by these older 
agricultural treaties. Yeah, so we're talking a very long tradition. This there. is the Renaissance, then. We're talking a sort there's of there's an agricultural Renaissance. Renaissance. Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. And then the British authors uh, that are um, responding to that and building upon that. When do they? When do we start to see those appear? Right. So initially, so you mentioned continental to begin with. So in the 16th century, uh, there's some big German and French treaties that that uh, British gentlemen rely on. First and foremost, that are most in, that are the most influential. Um, so it's really in the 17th century that the, the English books take off and it becomes a strong genre in its own right, and they stop importing books and start writing more of their own. Um, and I, I trace the sort of significant development really from the the mid 17th century, which is the beginning of what we call the Age of Improvement, mm. which is when British gentlemen start to believe that they can improve the earth, that they can they can increase the fertility um, of their fields, um, but also improvement in a wider sense, just in terms of bettering their estates, aesthetically as well as in terms of production. Mm. Um, and this sort of kicks off a new, a new wave of literature that gradually increases in the 17th and early 18th century, and then really spikes in the mid-18th century, exactly the time that Washington starts to read. So he's actually joining this story at a very interesting point when, in the when agricultural literature in Britain explodes, right? And the, the number that are getting printed year by year, you know, rockets on the graph. So I don't think I've heard you say the word science yet, and yet it seems you seem <laughs> to be uh, describing something that sounds scientific, uh, finding ways to to uh, improve agricultural production. Uh, is, this, is this science? How do you describe this? Well, yes and no. I mean... The word science makes makes historian of my period slightly uneasy. Okay, because <laughs> because we tend to have a very modern idea of what science is, and then if we project that back into the seventeenth century, for example, it's not quite what we think. We're talking about hypothesis and experiment and these kinds of things. Yeah, so it's we can we can talk about this as the period of the the long slow development of an agricultural science mm. right, as it's coming into being over a long period of time. So yes, the introduction of experiments. And yes, the introduction of you know, theories that try to explain what's happening rather than simply perform it. Right. So theories of where do plants get their food from, their nutrition, like how do they grow? Uh, but really, most historians wouldn't date the beginning of agricultural science as we understand it now until... Uh, I'm going to get my dates on 1830s, 1840s, when you get the introduction of agricultural chemistry. Mm. And we learn about nitrogen and right. potassium right. and their role in this. In, the in numbers the on your fertilizer bag. Yes, exactly. So before that, it's um, there are a lot of wild theories, um, but there's certainly the, the attempt to introduce experiments right, mm-hmm. um, and explore new methods of farming that are quite different to customary methods. Okay, so and you, now that we're talking about customary methods, it, it, I guess it bears noting that farmers just generally speaking off the top of my head, I would have assumed aren't a terribly literate bunch, um, but we're describing a literature of farming. Exactly. Uh, describe to me that, that that dichotomy there. Okay, so you've hit the nail on the head there, and it's exactly what I was interested in in my, in my PhD thesis, which I, which I finished last August. Hmm. So, so in general, most historians have looked at these books from a point of view of thinking, how did they directly contribute to changes in practice? So when was the first mention of a turnip in a book? Okay, where did that book go? Who read it? And did they then start planting? This is turnips? the work you're doing. No, so this is <laughs> so this was this is what most historians have done before. I okay. mean, I'm, I'm simplifying a bit, yeah. but they looked at how agricultural books contributed to changes in 
practice and methods. Um, what I wanted to do is ask slightly different questions, which was not how did books change the relationship between people and the land, but how did books change the relationship between people and other people? Okay. Right. So who are the two groups we're talking about? Right. So, so if we look at 16th, 17th century England, um, very simply we can say most of the people who are cultivating a land are not literate or illiterate or semi-literate. Perhaps they can read a little bit, but they certainly don't do so on a, on a um, regular basis. And most of the people who are literate don't know a great deal about farming. So we then have to ask, well, why is there, why are texts being written about farming in that society and what impact do they have? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I've looked at before. And if we ask, you know, where did the authors who are publishing these books get their information from, get their knowledge from, um, then it's very clear that a lot of it was from asking those same illiterate farmers in their local neighbourhoods or perhaps servants who worked on their, their farmer estate, asking them information, watching what they were doing and then writing it down. Hmm. So there's a transfer of knowledge essentially from an oral culture to a written culture. Right. Um, even though I said there is a, a long tradition of writing about agriculture, it was still very much at the margins, whereas this is where writing about agriculture becomes really widespread. Hmm. And then learning about agriculture through reading rather than imitating what you know, a parent is showing you to do um, and you know, following maxims and, and proverbs in your, um, you know, in your, in your oral culture of society, mm-hmm. um, people start learning from books. So what we've got here then is a, a change in the form of knowledge and we've got a redistribution of knowledge or a transfer of knowledge from sort of one social group to another. And that influences the type of knowledge that's contained in these books. So what I argue is... That these books, in many ways, were never intended to and were not able to teach the whole art of husbandry, as it was called, mm-hmm. the whole art of farming. Um, but what they could do is package up a certain kind of what I call managerial knowledge. So you can package up a certain kind of knowledge that's useful for people in managerial roles, such as George Washington, people who are owners of, of large estates and large farms. And large labor forces. And large labor forces, exactly. Um, so because books can be useful about helping you get a synoptic view of the whole of the whole process, plan, design, coordinate different processes, but they don't, they don't teach you to be a very good plowman. That's interesting. And so when the authors of these books, I guess author is a fair word, uh, yes. but you say they're, they're getting the information from somewhere else. Are they just, uh, out of curiosity, are, are they citing the local farmer that they chatted with about this? Do they describe the ways in which they're appropriating the, the information or are they do they keep that behind a veil? So it's mostly obscured, but there are some very interesting examples and again a very interesting example that in a book that Washington owned. Hmm. So a book by Edward Lyell called Observations in Husbandry. Now he collected a series of notes over his lifetime in the early 1700s in Hampshire, in England. The old Hampshire, not the new Hampshire. Mm. (laughs) Um, And this was what was called a commonplace book. So it was full of his notes and what he would do, he would write down quotes from some classical authors, write down some other notes that he'd read from contemporary English authors, and write down little anecdotes about... You know, I spoke to my dairymaid and she said this. I spoke hmm. to my neighbouring farmer and he said this. I travelled to this county, had a chat to a guy in the field and he said this. Now, because he actually died before he produced his book, it was left in this unedited form. So then uh, it was eventually printed by his son. 
um, or maybe even grandson actually, um, printed in 1756, 57, in that rather unedited form. So that book actually still shows where he was getting his information from. And it's an interesting example of one that Washington ends up with in his collection. But in some ways it's the exception that proves the rule because it hadn't yes, had an opportunity yes, to excise yes. those, those sources. Yeah, so many authors might describe the the different sources of where they get their information, and it's generally three things. I, other books they've read, local farmers who have more experience, than, you know, practical experience than they do, um, and then a little bit of their own experiments. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps, you know, a little bit of tinkering in a garden, or perhaps more, more widespread experiments, like people by Jethro Tull. So, to put a name to this, uh, Jethro Tull is a name that people uh, may know, but maybe know from a different context. Uh, tell us who, who the real Jethro Tull was as an example of this literature and, and the mark that he made in the field. So he's interesting, firstly, as an example of someone who was not trained in farming. Right. So he was trained in the law. Um, and it was only really through, I think, initially ill health that he, that he turns to farming. And that, that's initially quite important because he's not someone who was bred to husbandry, which was the phrase at the time, i.e., you know, grown up on a farm day to day as a child and learning the labour. Um, so that influences how he, how he approaches it. Um, but he travels around uh, Europe, particularly France and Italy, and then tries to take some ideas of what he finds there in what he calls vineyard culture um, and apply it to field, field culture in, um, in England. Um, and initially, he's just conducting these sort of experiments and trying to introduce new methods himself um, uh, in the early 1700s again. And it's not until a couple of decades later that other people encourage him to publish a book about it, uh, which is first in, it gets a, a small workout in 1731, and then his full workout in 1733 called The Horse Hoeing Husbandry. And what is horse hoeing uh, uh, husbandry about? Oh boy! <laughs> well, give us the shortest version possible, but it is it is a provocative phrase because it seems to to get at a, a couple of things there. Husbandry, you said, is just a catch-all term for agriculture. Yes, yes. Uh, horse hoeing. Yes, yes. So, so hoeing is about um, breaking up the soil between rows of planted crops in order to destroy weeds. Hmm. Um, and this was based on his. So what? Maybe I'll just go back slightly. Is it's all based on his theory. So why why Tull is quite interesting is he, he essentially begins with a theory and then sort of derives an entire, or well, you know he he develops a theory and then derives an entire mode of farming from it. Hmm. So his theory is that plants get their entire nutrition from the soil and it just needs to be broken down into smaller and smaller particles. The earth. So you don't need manure. Right. You don't need fertilizers. Um, so his whole method of farming is based is based on these me- mechanical techniques to break down the soil okay. and to ensure that um, there is no competition for particular crops. So sowing in rows, hoeing between them to uh, destroy competition from weeds, um, and then by and by by doing techniques like this, you don't need to fallow. Right? You don't need to leave the the field to recover, um, and you don't need to use fertilizers. Um, so these are many interesting ideas, um, even though his ultimate theory was was false, we would now say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't taken up widely initially, um, but his idea in his book became very, very influential at various stages throughout the 18th century and then in the American colonies as well. So let's make that our segue across the Atlantic. Um, these books, Jethro Tull's 
uh, others of that generation. Um, we briefly described how George Washington was reading them. Who else? Is this, is this something that our, uh, Americans across the board, North and South, are, are reading widely? I'm not sure about widely, but certainly reading. Mm-hmm. So um, another significant figure is Jared Elliott, um, who I, I don't know a huge amount about, but he was a, a minister and a physician up in Connecticut. Um, and he's slightly earlier than Washington, a generation earlier than Washington. But he's reading Tull, I think, around the 1730s or 40s. Um, so fairly early on. Um, and he publishes the first... He's the first American author of uh, an American husbandry book. Ah. And I think it's partly or at least largely inspired by Tull. Um, I don't know too much about the publication history. But he's, but he's an example there. Um, and what's interesting is actually that there seems to be not a huge amount of connection between the colonies, um, between, say, Connecticut and Virginia, but quite a lot of connection between each colony and the metropole. In some ways, that's the story of the, of the colonial yes. period. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so Tull pops up uh, in various places, um, you know, before and after Washington, you know, was taking his notes in 1760. Is he the towering name in the field, or is there, are there others that are... are Tull? The, yes. Are there probably, that are more famous? He's, he's probably the most influential, but that there are um, an array of other ones, mm-hmm. um, some of which are books that... Um, Washington gets hold of. So if we jump forward a bit later, he gets some books by Arthur Young um, and starts a correspondence with Young. So Young starts writing from, publishing from 1767 or so, publishes an enormous number of books in the the next few years. He's an Englishman. He's an Englishman, yes. And, um, and then becomes the most widely known and most prolific agricultural writer and eventually starts a periodical called Annals of Agriculture in 1784. Um, and Washington becomes, a, well, first a receiver of those books, which are sent initially <laughs> unsolicited, but he seems very pleased with them and, and ensures he gets all the latest uh, or the further copies of them. You, you describe Washington taking notes out of the books, and I, and, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the material record of Washington's reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do, what do we know about how he read and what he read? So I could talk a little bit about that, um, and then maybe go on to a little bit more about how we know which books he got, which mm-hmm. is something I've been focusing on. So what we know about Washington is he almost never annotated his books, his own copies. Um, which is a little bit frustrating for the historian, but, yes, but there we go. Um, so there's only a few exceptions of some marginalia. Um, one of those is in actually one of his farming books, which is um, by a Frenchman called Duhamel, uh, which maybe I can come back to because that's a very interesting book. Um, but in large part, he, he does not annotate them. But what he does first is that we have some uh, extracts from Tull in a, in, in a Virginia Almanac from 1760, the one I mentioned, um, in between his diary notes, which is good because we can precisely date when he was taking those notes. Um, and He's then there scribbling is, between the lines of an almanac, or how does he do it? So uh, there are blank pages um, interleaved right, mm-hmm. in the almanac. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're very much produced for that purpose, right, right. To, to, be, to, to serve as a kind of diary. So you get a few pages of... Here's what I was doing today, including, you know, you know, we tried you know, sowing this, we tried making a, a new plow. Um, and then a couple of pages which are suddenly just extracts about a crop called Sanfoin, um, which we can 
match to very particular sections of Tull's 1751 edition. And we know it's the 1751 edition because Washington seems to copy down a section that is from a footnote, which is only in the 1751 edition, not very the earlier editions. Well done. Um, and actually, it's very, in, terms, in terms of his reading habits, it's very interesting to look. And I was mapping his notes alongside Tull's book, and he's very, very selective about what he notes down and what he paraphrases. You know, mm. He'll note down a few sentences, change a few words, skip a paragraph or skip five pages, and then note down a couple of sentences, skip a few pages, note down a couple of sentences. So he's very, very particular with what he's noting down. You said this is 1760? This is 1760, So we're talking yes. about a relatively young man. Uh, he's, oh, he's, yes. He's not an old yeah. uh, farmer. He's, he's a, a young man who's, who's yes. really trying to yeah. understand things. Yeah, and I think it's useful to think about this in a broader context of his, his lifetime self-education and the various things he was involved in. You know, one of the things we know about Washington is he did not receive the formal education he he desired or expected because his father died young. Um, and he, for a long time, had, I think, a slight sense of inadequacy about his lack of classical training and lack of formal education. Um, and whatever he then engages in, early on it's surveying, then uh, in the military, and then eventually with plantation management, he initially turns to books and, and tries to educate himself and learn as much as he can. And, and we see that in, in, in 1760. Um, but to, to sort of finish your first question, there's a much larger section of notes from the 1780s. So okay. post-Revolutionary War, Washington comes, comes back to Mount Vernon with a new enthusiasm and uh, a much wider ambition to completely transform his estate. Um, and that's a period where he goes back to agricultural books again, which he hadn't bought He hadn't bought many for a while. In the late 60s, early 70s, there's not much records of him acquiring new farming books. Other then priorities. From, other priorities. Uh, yes, but then from 86, certainly, um, and for the next few years, um, he starts ordering more. So that's a point where he's turning his attention again to uh, trying to design new crop rotation systems and so on. And uh, and again, he's taking notes outside of the books, but we still have them? Yes, yes, we do. So um, they are currently held at the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. um, and they are fairly well organized. They're in almost a little bit of the form of the sort of commonplace book that I described that Edward Lyle had. So under certain headings, carrots, he will have, you know, a paragraph that he's taken from one book, then a few sentences he's taken from another book, um, you know, all collected under the same topic. So he's you know, harvesting, forgive the pun, different information from different sources and collecting them to form his own, you know, many, in many ways to create his own farming manual, right, which is unique to him. Absolutely. So two, two problems come to mind with a, an American reader of, of, of British text. Uh, a, climate. Virginia is not England. And B, slavery. Yes. Uh, there, there are no slaves in England, as they famously say. And uh, there's clearly uh, two ways in which Washington would have had to adapt and, and respond to those great differences. Pick one or both, but uh, tell us a little bit about how Washington does that. Okay, well, I'll, t- I'll turn my attention to the, the management of labor issue, because mm-hmm. I think that is an interesting one. Um, because obviously, although they don't always talk about it explicitly, most of the English authors are assuming that their reader has a labor force that is composed of either wage laborers who are earning you know, money by the day, or perhaps by the, by the piece, um, like for a particular bit of work, or they've got servants who are hired on annual contracts. 
Um, and most of, the, most of those people they will hire will have some, also some local farming experience, usually some practical experience. So the authors sort of assumed this. But obviously, when Washington's trying to apply these manuals to his situation with an increasingly large enslaved labor force, he's faced with quite a difficult situation. Um, this is, this is um, highlighted, I think, actually best when in thinking about the limitations of books is that the books are clearly not enough at one point and he, he uh, recruits an English farmer to come over because he wants an expert to come over to help him organise his farms. This is in the mid-1780s and a guy called James Bloxham comes over. And okay. uh, one of the immediate problems is that James Bloxham is worried about or fears or struggles to manage the enslaved labourers under his command. Mm. Um, and later this becomes a, a particular problem and Washington seems to ultimately come to the conclusion that despite his his farming expertise, right, this English farmer, um, he was unable to command and manage uh, enslaved labour. And so he could not transfer his knowledge mm -hmm. from from England and the, the labour conditions there to Virginia. Um, and that's, that's quite interesting because it, it shows that Obviously, Washington, to an extent, felt that he did have the knowledge, skills, and experience that he developed over time as a slave owner, you know, in knowing how to manage and direct slaves. Mm. Um, so, this is an issue which deserves more study, <laughs> and I'm hoping to look into more. Um, but it does raise a very interesting question. Does the climatological divergence, does that factor in as well, or is that something that's uh, less significant as, in terms of the challenges of, of interpreting on this side of the Atlantic? It certainly does factor into it. In some ways, it's, it's first and foremost a general problem that people have in England as well before it goes across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, a, there's a, you know, quite a huge amount of geographical diversity between you know, different English counties sure. um, in terms of uh, soil and microclimates. So there's already a problem with um, books circulating in a national context yeah. um, or a continental one in Europe um, and being able to apply them to different farms. So in some ways, Washington's dealing with only maybe an extension of a fundamental gen generic problem with, with books anyway. Um, but it is, it's certainly one that he, he, he struggles with, I think, in converting from tobacco to wheat, which he does in, in the mid-1760s. Um, although it's not an issue I've looked into too much detail while I've, while I've been here. So I know that your, your time at Mount Vernon uh, in, is, is your effort to um, take uh, a large amass knowledge of the British literature and bring Washington into it, because we know he's a consumer of this stuff. I wonder if you could uh, give us your early sense of Washington as as an agricultural, uh, you're staying away, away from the word scientist, but as, <laughs> as someone who's, who's clearly an experimental farmer, I feel like that's a term yeah, maybe they yeah. used at the time. Uh, where, where does Washington fit? Do you see him as someone who's a bit of a hack? Do you see him as, as actually being pretty uh, insightful and good at it? What's, yeah. your, what's your preliminary read? So my impression so far, I think, is is one that we need to situate him in terms of the Atlantic book trade, mm. the transatlantic book trade. Um, because what I've been trying to do is reconstruct what, what knowledge did he have about what books were available and what opportunities did he have in order to access them. And in those cases, I think 
he had quite limited information about what he could get and he found it quite difficult to then obtain them so in his you know from in his first years from 1759 to 64 he gets two books that he doesn't order from his london agent um, he requests another book which never arrives it takes him two years to uh, give enough information to his london agent to then get one of the books he wants. Um, You're describing the challenge as being a provincial farmer period. Exactly, exactly. So, but this this is interesting because he's 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 a very serious reader of agricultural books. I think that's very clear. Mm-hmm. So he is quite particular about what he tries to get. But to some extent, he is ultimately at the mercy of the transatlantic book trade. And so quite limited. So when the, we move up to that later period, does he have more access and more information with which to work? The 1780s and stuff. Yes, yes, uh, I think that's certainly true. So I haven't looked at that in as much detail yet. Um, I mean, the 1790s, he's he's getting floods of literature, you know. Yeah. So you know, but but doesn't then have time to read them or, or act on them. The most famous man in America tends to, to get a lot of free books. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, um, but. Just to give a couple of examples of him selecting books, I mean, this one actually isn't about selecting agricultural books, but in 1783, he he asks um, uh, a subordinate in the military, I forget who, um, to to get him a book catalogue from New York um, so he can order some, select some books to sort of get back to Mount Vernon because he wants to start building up his library again. Mm. And he gets sent a newspaper, which I managed to identify, which has a sales catalogue of over 180 titles. And in his letter response, he picks out nine. So he's very, very particular as well. And again, you can see the newspaper he's got in front of him and the books he's selected. So he's very particular about what he reads. You know, he's not a, in general, a bookish man or a scholar. He's not a voracious reader. He's not just getting everything he thinks he should get. Mm-hmm. Um, he reads with a very particular purpose. Um, so that's certainly clear. And, and in that list of 180 titles, there are no agricultural books. So even if he wanted them at that time, they're not on a list and he couldn't order them. Um, so I think what, I think his situation was one where he was, to some extent, having to struggle with what he could get his hands on um, and the books that were available and do the best he could with them. Um, and again, just to go back to his notes on Tull, it's very clear that he the passages he skips over are the more theoretical ones, the more reflective ones. Mm-hmm. What he knows down are quite specific practical instructions, and he seems less interested in dwelling on the sort of underlying theory. So the yeah, the image we may have of Washington as a kind of man of action, a practical man, perhaps does fit with the, his mode of, of reading and mode of reading these, these books. Um, but, it, but it also means that the books he ends up with, the English farming books, is only a particular selection of what was available mm-hmm. in Britain at the time. Um, and I think that's important because these books vary quite wild, widely in terms of their style, their content, um, and their quality. So what he ends up with, um, you know, what, what happens to make it across a, across a ship, um, then has quite a big effect on then what he can do with it. And that's partly what I'm sort of trying to look into a little bit now is precisely which books he had um, and the difference it made that he had one book rather than another because they're, they're very different. So at some point, this will culminate in what for you? What are you? What are you? What are you here working on? What's the What's the ultimate product you want to build up toward? Okay, so first, um, I mean, I'd like to sort of 
have a standalone, maybe, you know, article or, or essay about Washington as a reader of agricultural books. Very good. But, yeah, more broadly speaking, I think he's, he's a good entry point and lends into a, a series of much broader problems, which is what happened to these, these books when they leave the UK, when they, when they leave Britain. Um, where do they go and what impact do they have? Um, so he's an interesting first case study, but then I want to you know, contextualize him properly with what we know about what were in the, the libraries and what were being sold in bookstores in not, not only Virginia, but, but other colonies as well around a similar period. Um, and trying to, trying to get better answers to the one you asked me earlier about, you know, what was the impact of Jethro Tull? Mm-hmm. Right over here, um, which I can't give you a full enough answer yet. And this sounds like a book. That could very much be a book itself, a book on books. Yes. Very good. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Kevin. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.